0: Welcome to the Connect Church podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Good morning. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter fourteen, and we'll just read verse six. The uh, context is these religious men. Just about all of the disciples had been religious, although they were not, uh, you know, vocationally priests or members of the Sanhedrin or Pharisees or. Every, every young Jewish man would have, would have been raised in the knowledge of, of how things work, faithful to the law, faithful to the temple, faithful in their prayers and the sacrifices. One of the things that Jesus was known for, is known for, I should say, uh, but certainly to these first disciples, was that, and, and, and Jesus said this multiple times and in many ways, that everything He did was to reflect the glory of the Father. And so everything that he said was given to him to say. Everything that he did was given to him to do. And, and so although the, the, the Jews uh, were very well acquainted with the law and the prophets and God, uh, when Jesus came along, he started talking a lot about the Father. Now the Father was a little bit... They, they knew about the Father, but they didn't know the Father. Uh, and so they had a lot of questions about that. And when Jesus would tell them how to do this, he would talk about the Father. And Jesus would talk about the Father, who he would glorify, and the God, Father who sent him. And you could, how do you pray? Well, when you pray, pray this way: Our Father who art in heaven. So Jesus is talking a lot about the Father because that's what he's reflecting, who he is reflecting. And so when I, I don't know, I guess I guess Philip uh, was just bold enough in John chapter fourteen verse six. It says that Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. In other words, we keep hearing you talk about Him, but boy, it sure would be great if we could see Him, experience Him. And and Jesus said to Philip, rather than drawing you a picture or telling you a story, I'm going to give you a map. And so He said to Philip, Philip, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except by Me. Jesus does not say that He is a way. He is the way. Jesus did not come to show us the way. He is the the way. And while that seems incredibly exclusive, there are no other ways to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Truth of the matter is, it is the most inclusive statement that the world has ever known. Because Jesus Christ is available to everyone whosoever will let him come. It is not the Father's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And while around the world Christians are known for being bigoted, for being so narrow-minded and so exclusive. The truth of the matter is there is not a more inclusive faith that the world has ever known than Christianity. Because the thing that we need in order to experience salvation and knowledge and relationship with the Father is grace. It is only by grace through faith that we can be saved. And the one thing that qualifies us for grace is we must be a sinner. That's great news because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who doesn't qualify? We all qualify for salvation in Jesus Christ. So for those of you who this may be your first week with us, this may maybe the first in a few. Over the next few weeks, uh, we've been uh, we've started this, uh, a series called What Does the Bible Say About? where we're receiving questions that, that you want answered. Now, I've gotten a lot even this week after last week. And, uh, and they're good. They're all good. Everybody's taking this very seriously. And, and listen, I understand that there are some questions you want to know the answers to. There's some questions you already know the answers to, but you want me to answer the question for the person sitting beside you. I know how this works, and I'm happy to do that. Uh, I am trying to not show personal prejudices or preferences in the messages, uh, but simply stay true to the Word of God, uh, not my opinions. And so uh, some questions are much more difficult than others. Uh, but I do know this. I, I know that, that God is... It's, it's also interesting. I've been in ministry a long, long time now. Decades. And I can tell you that uh, the things that people would have asked 20 years ago, nobody asks anymore. So it's, it's kind of interesting. And 20 years ago, I would have never thought that we would have to answer some of the other questions. But nevertheless... Uh, this week's question is, uh, is a two-parter, and I really did think that I was going to be able to get through the whole message, so what I've been able to do is to take some of the questions and group them into groups, uh, and, and, and so to, to fully express uh, answers, because some, some questions are actually the same questions. Uh, and so, this would fall under the heading of, of salvation, uh, and, and so I'm going to try to get through as far as I can go, but I know that I'm not going to get through all of it, so uh, we'll take up next week wherever we leave off today. But the question is, what does the Bible say about unsavable people? People that are beyond the ability or do not have the ability uh, to be to be saved. I think of a uh, passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 15. You can turn there if you would like. But in, in Genesis chapter 15, in verse 16 specifically, I want to set up the context for you. The context is God is speaking to Abraham, and He is telling Abraham, uh, is kind of in the covenant giving uh, portion of Scripture. And so when when God is telling Abraham that He's going to bless him and make him a blessing, that the blessing that God gives Abraham is supposed to flow through him to all of the nations. It's a very powerful context uh, for, the, for the, well, uh, one of our patriarchs of our faith. But he is telling Abraham that in this multitude of nation that God is going to forge through him, that, the, that these uh, descendants are going to be forced to go into Egypt for a time. Uh, he says four generations. Uh, so, for about 400 years, uh, all of the Israelites uh, are in, in Egypt. And he says that at that time, after 400 years passes, they will be dismissed from Egypt and they will be able to go back into the promised land. And, and in that land are all of the Canaanites, Jebusites, Perizzites, all of the ites, right? One of them is the Amorites. And he says that for four, it's going to take four hundred years. When they go back in, they will create. We'll talk about this at another week. This isn't for this week. But they're going to be at war with all of these other nations, and to drive them out and to decimate them, some of them beyond I mean, extinction. They don't even exist anymore. But again, don't get caught up in all of that. Get caught up in in, in where we're at. All right. So he says. For 400 years because the Amorites, this is in verse 16 of chapter 15 of Genesis, the Amorites' sin has not come to full measure. And so it's important to know that while God has a plan for these pagan nations, God is also orchestrating a plan for His own people. And part of God's plan for His people is in, during that 400 years, they're going to be into slavery and bondage. But at the same time, spiritual bondage has taken place in all of Canaan. And God says for 400 years, their sin is going to be piling up and piling up and piling up. But it's not full yet. So I'm not going to destroy them yet. But a time will come, the implication is is that their sin will come full measure. And then I'm going to let you go in, and you will destroy them. Now, it's also important to know that there is a remnant everywhere. And the Amorites would not have been unaware, similar to Jonah. When God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah was the remnant that was available to them to be able to preach repentance, and they listened. The Amorites knew full well. Now, they didn't live 400 years, but they knew full well that God's judgment was coming. And what did they do to prepare? Nothing. They chose their own culture. They chose uh, chose their own entertainment. They chose their own faith systems. Their own traditions. Instead of listening to the voice of of God and when time came that their sin had become full measure they were destroyed so what about unsavable people i'm going to answer it really briefly i never want to go into greater detail okay there is no such thing as an unsavable person it doesn't exist they don't Exist? Does that mean that everyone will be saved? No, it does not mean that everyone will be saved. But it does mean that everyone can be redeemed. And so the question would not be unsavable pe- uh, people. The question would be irredeemable people. Are there people who are incapable of being redeemed? And the answer is no. The only people that would be possible to be To not be redeemed would be people who did not need redemption. These would be perfect people. And if there are perfect people, then God doesn't exist. It's a good thing that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Okay, so we're going to take all of that. We're going to let it marinate over here on on the stove. Okay, so think about a person or the person. Whom you think is the most unlikely person to become a Christian? Now you don't have to know them personally. It could be you know somebody from history or somebody in the world today, but somebody that is the least likely candidate for salvation of becoming a Christian. Now I want to ask you uh, why? Why would you draw that conclusion about that particular person or people? Odds are, you are looking at the way that that person orders their life. And in particular, the blatant distaste or disregard for God. In other words, that level of rebellion that's in their life. And based upon the level of rebellion that they have toward God would determine how close to the gospel we think they are. And so when we get on an elevator, just watch for a second, I'm not being judgmental necessarily, uh, or not meaning to. But you get on an elevator and you're the first one on. And I don't, you know, I mean, we, we get on. I always wanted to get on an elevator and just, leave, and just look at the back wall. And somebody gets on the elevator and you're just facing in a different direction. I mean, it'd be, we don't do that. We get on and we turn around because we want to be able to see who's coming. And so we, uh, somebody gets on the elevator behind us and it's somebody who's not like you. It's somebody who looks like a gang member. You can't tell for sure, but you've heard stories about people like them. And immediately, or, or let's be a little bit more uh, bold. You're standing on the elevator, and all of a sudden, a Muslim gets on the elevator. And, and you go, and we, and we get just a little bit more fearful. Now, our assumption is they don't speak English, so we don't talk. Our assumption is they hate us already, so we don't engage. In doing all of those things, we've made several assumptions without even knowing who they are, right? Truth of the matter is, we have evaluated them based upon what we feel like they are bringing to the table to work with. Who we are working with. What we're working with. And so, based upon our level of selfishness or our level of fear, will determine how we engage the gospel in somebody's life. Now listen, their life didn't just determine for them whether or not they were savable. But our silence just determined that. Do you see? Our fear. Fear of what? Well, I don't know how to talk to them. I don't know. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? What if? What if? What if? What if? Well, here's one way I can control the situation. So what we've got to learn to do is to get rid of this bias This really, and I, listen, and it's not about a race of people. It's any type of people that's not like us already. Because I can tell you, if you get on the same elevator and somebody who looks like you get on, we're a lot more free to go, hey, good day. How are you? Good. I mean, it might stay platitudes, but there's engagement. Because we're not nearly as afraid of people we don't know. Or ways we don't know. Listen, the gospel doesn't understand that. The gospel says that nobody is beyond the scope of redemption. And you can't possibly know where people are on the spectrum of what God is speaking into their life. Their rebellion, their their actions, their dress, their backgrounds. None of those things tell you anything about what God is doing in their life. And what questions they are forming about God. God. So evaluating people by what we are working with, or what we are, or what they are working with, we need to remind ourselves of who we are working with. Is anybody beyond salvation? No, not one. Is anybody beyond the ability of the grace of God to pierce their life? No. In fact, God might use us. To bring them one step closer to the next elevator moment. So when you start thinking and evaluating, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to even give us the benefit of the doubt because most of the time, we're not even thinking about the gospel in people's life. We're not even thinking about grace at all. We're thinking about what floor we're getting off. What kind of hurry we're in. Or where we're headed next. Or who has more value to us that we're about to meet. So, when you begin to think who is worth your time, if your time is the gospel, then it's who is worth the gospel. You think to yourself, and we do it so quickly, well, I could see them becoming a Christian or I could never see that person becoming a Christian. They're going to take way more time than I have. Listen, in both cases, grace is neglected. And who qualifies for grace? Again, so, so it's by grace that we are saved through faith. And so what saves us? God's grace And when God's grace saves us, that grace flows into us and out of us. And that's what we're responsible for. Not what people say yes to, but being grace dispensers. Everywhere we go, every conversation we have. In fact, the Bible says, don't even say things unless they're seasoned with grace. Why? Grace in, grace out. Let me give you an example of this how God how God touches the the least likely in Acts chapter six this is in verse seven and the word of God continued to increase now I want to take a second this is a very weird phrase so if if my Bible is laying on the end table on Monday morning and I open it and I read it you know and just say I read all of it and uh And then Tuesday morning I get up and it's a half inch thicker. Wednesday morning, a full inch thicker. And I say, man, the Word of God has continued to increase. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's the literal understanding of that. But the truth of the matter is, the Word of God does not increase. This this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 6 is talking about the effectiveness of the grace of God at work through the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God, and now He has been planted in you. His Spirit dwells in you. You are the temple of God. Jesus is the Word of God. As the Word of God increases, all it is saying is that it is becoming more and more effective through God's people. The Word of God continued to increase. And as a result, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Just let that sink in for a moment. (laughs) I mean, seriously, we're in first century Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 7, first century Jerusalem, tells us that a great many of the least likely candidates for salvation gave their life to Jesus Christ. The priest. A couple of years ago, they trumped up charges on on Christ Himself, nailed Him to the cross... If you were in first century Jerusalem, you would be walking around the priests in your conversation about Jesus Christ. What did the priests think about Jesus? Well, they're offended by Him. They're threatened by Him. In fact, so threatened, they killed Him. And they're currently killing everybody who is talking about Him. They're constantly getting everybody in trouble. Least likely. And a great many of the priests... Have you ever noticed something about how much God loves to save those who we would say are irredeemable, unsavable? The Bible's filled with it. I think it's most visible in the book of Matthew. Jesus loves to save those that everybody else would write off. The immoral, the unethical. These are the ones who step into the kingdom way before the most likely Pharisees. I mean, they were right there. The Pharisees were right there. <laughs> and yet you have men like Zacchaeus, who was a thief. But man, when, when Zacchaeus, the irredeemable Zacchaeus, gave his life to Jesus Christ, he started writing fat checks. Much more than he had ever shaken the people down for. From least likely to most likely, and the and the good candidates, the most likely, had a real difficult time accepting this. In fact, it is the number one reason why they hated Jesus. So, if we if we were to transplant their situation into our contemporary time we'd probably found it unbelievable as they did i mean if you think about jesus who is the son of god and all the only people he's walking around are prostitutes and drug addicts he, he's, he's hanging out with gang members he's hanging out with with corrupt politicians And immoral CEOs. I mean, this is who Jesus is hanging with. In fact, it's the number one thing they said about Jesus. The most likely candidates for salvation are saying, He hangs out with sinners. And these sinners keep stepping into the kingdom way ahead of the Pharisees. By the time you get to the end of Matthew, you really start to catch on you realize that Jesus seems to be more interested in saving down and outers than He is the religious elite. Those who want preferential treatment. Especially when you get to chapter 23, you developed a brand new category of unsavable people. It's the Pharisees. Boy, and they fit they fit right into that category. In fact, it was Jesus that said to them, you brood of vipers, you serpents, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now, if that doesn't sound like writing off an entire people group, I don't know what does. But in this incredible turn of events, if you go through the end of of Matthew, and then you jump over into the book of Acts, you start to see this really weird thing that happens. God throws us this huge curveball. And it is... Okay, so after the resurrection, who is mentioned the most, writes the most, the most pressure and responsibility is put on for establishing churches? Who, who is out there that wrote most of the New Testament? A Pharisee! <laughs> it was a Pharisee! A recovering Pharisee, a transformed Pharisee, how the least likely become the most likely because of God's grace. He gave up everything. Everything. In fact, Romans chapter 14 says that he was, or chapter 1, verse 14 says that he recognized he was under an obligation. To give the gospel to the least likely, the Gentiles. Sitting in prison for preaching the gospel. The walls shake. And in this scenario, Paul would have been the least likely to be saved. But now he now he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Sitting in prison, doing the most the least likely thing praising the lord bleeding out and then the most incredible thing happens the least likely person experiences salvation the philippian jailer and over and over and over and over and over throughout scripture you have other passages of scripture like like where where the ethiopian eunuch is riding down the road i mean the ethiopian unlikely eunuch Unlikely. Reading the book of Isaiah says, how could I understand this? Boom, Philip pops up. I mean, this is unlikely stuff. I mean, look at Saul of Tarsus. The the church did not have a greater enemy than Saul. We would say in the story, when you're reading Stephen's execution, you would not say, "Mm, I can predict this. That guy giving his life to Jesus. Listen, when you, when you begin to see people as the enemy, and I know, especially if you have OCD, you love to put people in boxes. We love to have lists of the alwayses and the nevers. But even as Christian people, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more defined our boxes become. And we start seeing people as the enemy. Now listen, don't give yourself a pass on this. I'm telling you, our politically driven, even locally, everybody wants to identify which box they belong in on every issue and topic. Different boxes that we belong in. So when you start seeing people as the enemy, regardless of how deep that feeling is, that will keep you from sharing the gospel you were making a judgment call on whom god who god can deal with and who god will not it is selfish and it is fear and it's fear that points to our selfishness i believe that fear is the basis of selfishness the reason we are selfish is because we're afraid of something being taken from us that we want or something being given to us that we don't or being out of control But fear occurs because only one reason. is because we're looking at ourself way too closely. The trick of the gospel is not to look at yourself at all. But to look unto Jesus. And to be able to see that everyone can receive the grace of God. And when you really begin to adopt that as a habit, you'll begin to find that, Every conversation has an opportunity to speak the glory and the graciousness of God. Men like Paul, the priests, the Roman guards, governors, man, they would clearly be in the category of the most likely to not become a Christian. But God doesn't work, God doesn't work that way. So when you begin to ask yourself, well, is, is this person worth, worth my time? Were, were they worth the cross? So God gives us knowledge. So if you're taking notes, you want to write these, these two things down. One, there's two types of knowledge. One is called general knowledge. General knowledge. This is uh, also could be called natural Knowledge. It's knowledge we have just because we're human. It's, we don't know where it comes from. We just have it. Now, you're going to want to hold on to this because of the message for next week. But general knowledge is, is knowledge that we would say is innate. We have it because we're human. Now, there's general knowledge like we would say, well, I know the sun comes up. But there are people who study the sun who know words that we've never heard. People who study trees, who know words we've never heard, or birds, or any of the ways that any of the science world works, ecosystems, you name it. People who know far more, but that all is still in this general knowledge category. We can know it because we're human. The second type of knowledge is called special knowledge. Special knowledge. It's knowledge that we do not get any other way except it is specially given to us by God Himself. It's where God would take general knowledge and do something with it in a way that might go against the natural norms. It's in special knowledge where we would experience information from the Holy Spirit or we may be able to hear something that is brought to our minds in a way or a, a word of knowledge uh, or any of these uh, the miracles that God would perform; those are special knowledge. It's also called empirical knowledge. It's it's knowledge that we gain from uh, uh, a divine in a divine way. General knowledge we experience with our senses, and special knowledge we get from God. Now, typically speaking, not always necessarily. These we've got to leave room for miracles. But typically what will happen is a person has general knowledge. We all have general knowledge, different levels of it, of course. But we have general knowledge. And based on the answers of faith that we gain from general knowledge, God will give us special knowledge to complement that. For instance, we know, Ecclesiastes says this, Paul also echoes this several times, that eternity is placed in our hearts. So that actually is not special knowledge, that's general knowledge. That I am born with a knowledge that this isn't all there is. I am born with a knowledge that there is a God out there somewhere. This is one of the reasons why you can go to anywhere in the world if they've never even known that there's a world outside their village, they're worshipping something because general knowledge tells them. Because in God's creation. Based on what we do with general knowledge, God will come along with special knowledge to complement that. So, for instance, if I know that there is a God out there, I should be worshiping. I don't know why. I don't know what it is. I'm going to go ahead and start worshiping. But this book is special knowledge. Everybody doesn't have this. This is special knowledge. This is very precious. And then when I open it, God gives even more special knowledge to me personally. Oh, it helps me answer so many questions. But I had questions with general knowledge. God keeps answering them with special knowledge because I keep pursuing more and more and more of Him. Right? I'm not living in rebellion to what I know as a human. I'm living in a, hopefully, a surrendered state wanting to know more of Him. So more of Him is given to me. Now, I'm going to say all of that. We're going to talk a whole lot more about that next week. But what I wanted to say about that today is this. You, we cannot possibly know what questions are in the hearts and minds of people based on their general knowledge. And you cannot tell by how they're dressed or what country they're from what questions that their general knowledge is evoking from them. The, the, the way that they've responded by their dress and by their attitudes and by their coping mechanisms give you no indication of what questions they are asking about general knowledge. And it is quite possible that God would use you to bring special knowledge to their general knowledge. But when we've made up a decision that we care more about how we're going to be looked at or treated or thought of Then we do what grace is going to be given to them. We'll just make Christianity about ourselves. And we'll become a grace cesspool, receiving but never giving. It's no wonder the world calls us hypocrites. Because nature itself tells them that there is an answer out there. We claim to have the answer but we're in the corner of the elevator with our arms crossed. I get tired of hearing the world say that Christians are judgmental. I'm so tired of them being right. Listen. When it comes to sharing our faith, being open, being used... Risking. (laughs) Listen, when you're in Christ, you're not risking your reputation because remember, you're dead. Christ lives in you. It's His reputation on the line. When you don't open your mouth, that's His reputation, not yours. When you're worried about what people are going to think about you, that's His reputation, not yours. That's selfishness. That's fear. That's not Christ. So when we have opportunities to speak or the Holy Spirit urging us to speak, we can't get away with saying, well, that's somebody else's gift. I'm not gifted to do that. You may not be gifted to do it. Some people are gifted to do it. But we are all mandated to do it. So when it comes to sharing our faith, the number one hindrance is not the state of the world. It's the state of the Word in us. That will determine how effective we are. So if you want to kind of reverse engineer the book of Acts, it'd be pretty easy to do. I'm going to go through that really quick. The very first thing that Jesus does, whether I would say the last thing he does before he before he ascends to heaven is to give the mandate. Jerusalem, see what happens. Jerusalem, and I don't mean this to be, you know, like the, the goal or the point but they start amassing great amounts of influence in Jerusalem really, really quickly. I mean, thousands of people, thousands of people piling up, right? It starts in Jerusalem, Judea, you know, as Jerusalem begins to explode, it's natural thing, supernatural thing to do is once you become a believer is to share it. You realize that. If you're not sharing your faith, it's because you've suppressed that in your life. Not because you're not called. You've suppressed it. Holding it down. Because the supernatural thing is to share our faith. So, from Jerusalem to Judea, and these, you know, these people are, are close to us. They're, they're neighbors. And then he says, Samaria, though they're our neighbors too, although they're nothing like us. But you know what? Jerusalem, we need some people to go to Samaria. Samaria. Well, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're, we're getting out there and we're multiplying and multiplying and multiplying out there into the world. And we can't wait till we get to the uttermost. And I, listen, I'm just going to be just so blunt right here. When people say, well, we got our own problems here to work with. If you say stuff like that, you have never been where they really have problems. We do have our own stuff here and you're here. But that does not eliminate our responsibility to be in the uttermost parts of the earth. And so you take a missionary and you send him out there in the middle of nowhere. He starts just exploding with grace and it starts moving out. And then this little people group becomes this people group. And this people group reaches this people group. And before long, you've got little pockets of growing Christianity all over the world. No, not us. We're in the corner of the elevator making judgment calls on who qualifies for grace, based on how far they are away from whatever vision it is that we think a Christian should look like. So, Jesus said, go. What did they do? They started thinking about going. But you can't read the book of Acts with every encounter. You're going to stumble over prayer. I mean, these people were praying all the time. They'd get together in little prayer groups and they were praying and praying and praying and praying. And we, we, we need to value prayer in the life of the church because that's what gives us special revelation, special wisdom, special knowledge to know how to speak into general knowledge. General knowledge, think of general knowledge like puzzle pieces. Alright, so everybody is born with puzzle pieces and they pour the puzzle out up on the table. Special knowledge... Tells us how to put those puzzle pieces into a place so that it all makes sense. I think of the Jews when Peter is preaching to the Jews in, in Acts chapter two, or chapter one and chapter two. But when he's preaching to these men of Israel, perceive you to be religious people. And he starts winding through the law and he starts winding through the prophets and he finally gets to it's this Jesus that you crucified on a tree. And they go, oh, the missing link. That was the puzzle piece. We were so close to the puzzle. But we were missing a few pieces. But it was Peter's special knowledge that helped them. What must we do to be saved? 3,000 just like that. You never know. You never know what special knowledge you might be able to bring to collective general knowledge. These people were praying. They were looking for wisdom. God, direct us. Soften the hearts of people. Help us to be compassionate. That doesn't come easy. Help us to be hospitable. That doesn't come easy. Help us to be selfless. That doesn't come easy. The more I talk with Jesus, the more I look like Jesus. So the more time I can spend in prayer, the more confidence I'll have that He is all I need. That's why they're praying. Sometimes we're going to talk about prayer in the fall, but when we start thinking about praying, boy, we start thinking, boy, why do I pray if God already knows what He's going to do? That's a great question. We're going to answer that later, far later. But for now, that's not the point of prayer, is to tell God what to do. The point of prayer is to think more like Him. That's why the early church is constantly praying all the time. In fact, they're praying and they're not even good at it. I mean, in fact, they're pretty bad at it. One night they're praying and they're praying for Peter to be released from prison. And they're praying and praying and praying. It's the middle of the night. And an angel is over kicking Peter and waking him up in jail and open up jail cells and open up gates. Peter's stumbling all the way through Jerusalem unseen by anybody. He gets to the early church, to the house where they're praying, knocks on the door. A little girl goes to the door, opens it up and says, "Ah, a ghost. Peter's already been killed and he's dead and his ghost has come to see us. I mean, these are prayer warriors. (laughs) We need to. Prayer is the best remedy for bad eyesight. When your eyes make a judgment call, if you're not prayed up, you'll miss the opportunity. The more you pray, the better your eyesight will be. They also prioritized faithful preaching. And they didn't give it to the studied, they didn't give it to the vocationally able. Everybody preached. Everywhere they went, they were preaching. You say, well, I'm not a preacher. God did not call me to be a preacher. Well, a preacher simply means to herald or to declare the good news. That's what it means to preach the gospel. To declare the good news. And so it wasn't the job of the hired hand. It was the responsibility of every believer to take every opportunity proclaim the good news everywhere they went it's very common when Paul is writing a letter back to the church to thank the church for all of these laymen who worked alongside of him who helped him in ministering the gospel over and over and over yes we might we might see Peter's perspective and John's perspective and Paul's perspective. But these men were not capable of stirring the dust up if it weren't for the church of Jesus Christ actively engaged in every pocket of their society. Now, I want to read Acts chapter 2 again quickly. Not the whole chapter, verse 42. But I want you to see just the ordinary. It's just ordinary stuff. I mean, it's not... This is not supernatural stuff. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. That means they were faithful to what the Word of God said. This is the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That's the one another, collective, community. And the breaking of bread and prayers. I mean, what they did is they they were obedient to the gospel. They spent time making sure that one another was being held accountable in that fellowship, and and they ate together and prayed together. This is not supernatural stuff. This is relationships and eating and prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, not through the early Christians. And all who believed were together and had all things common. This is just unity. These are things we choose to do Not things being done upon us. We choose these things. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their home, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Again, these are choices that they are making. Praising God and all of these things caused them to have favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. Not weekly at altars, daily at your work, in your homes. So, well, I can't lead anybody to Christ. Well, how did you find him? It's not rocket science. We don't need four or five steps. You don't have to know a certain algorithm to lead people to Jesus. You have to be able to say, I once was blind, but now I can see. That's it. It's super simple to lead people to Christ. Discipling them, completely different. Not completely. If you're not a disciple, it's going to be hard for you to disciple somebody. But it's simply just walking alongside and growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were also a very generous people. You can't be generous and selfish at the same time. Acts chapter four. So we've got one, two, three, and now we're in chapter four. Chapter four says that they were given generously. Landowners were selling their property, giving it to the church so that everybody could have what they needed to have so that they could be free to share the gospel. Do you know how you know when the gospel has taken root? You know, we say, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in the gospel. Yeah, I know that. We've accepted the gospel. We've accepted it. We believe it. I'm talking about how to get it rooted so that it begins to grow and sprouts. And this is the part of Christianity that's missing today in American Christianity is we've believed and checked the box, but it's not changed our life. It doesn't take root. We're not giving it away and allowing it to sprout in the next generation. You know how you do it? People open up their homes and become selfless. That's how you know that the gospel has taken root. Selflessness. So, let me ask you this. What does the Bible say about unsavable, irredeemable people? Nothing. Nothing. No, in fact, it says that that those that we would find least likely are the ones that God is already at work in. They've taken their general knowledge and they've perverted the takeaways. Say, general knowledge equals this. Well, for me, general knowledge equals whatever things that brings me to Jesus Christ. And He connects all the dots for me. For a lot of the world, they get that general knowledge. That's where false uh, religions come from. That's where hatred comes from. Because these are the best ideas people have come up with, with general knowledge. What they need is the people who have already experienced special knowledge to come alongside and show them what the puzzle is supposed to look like. Let's be honest. I want you to think real hard for a minute. Is it likely that any of us should be saved? Well, if you knew anything about me, you'd know I'm the least likely. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be felt so heavy in this room today. I pray that maybe we would catch a glimpse of what you intend to do through your church, what you have intended to do with any church that's been open, with any people that have been receptive to allowing your spirit of grace to work through us. I pray that, Lord, you would allow that to start here. Give us a fresh revival. Help us remember who we were, who we are, and, and the work that you have called us to, and the work you've already started in everybody in this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. <clears throat> and we're going to come full circle real quickly. Um, as long as there is breath in us we must live for the gospel now while the Bible doesn't talk about unsavable people everybody's savable the Amorites were savable but they made the choice to harden their hearts and to turn to their own rebellion So 400 years after Genesis 15. And I know we live in a culture where God is good and God is love and God doesn't let bad things happen. Listen, Scripture is very clear. What does the Bible say about God's character and nature? One of the things that we know about God from Scripture is that God's wrath hangs upon the head of those who have not responded to His grace. People say, and I know you've heard them. They're popular people. God doesn't get angry. God's not angry at you. That's not what Scripture says. That God's anger is being kindled against unrighteousness. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's the beautiful part. It doesn't have to be that way. While God's wrath hangs upon our head son hung on a cross so that we might be and gain his righteousness so when it comes back to the Amorites of Genesis 15 there is a day that comes oh it wasn't today for them it was 400 years for the entire people group and we assume that because God works that way with people he works that way with people that there was a day when God said I have had it up to here. Done. Unsavable? No, they were savable all along. But I've had it. Their sin has come full measure. And So while we think we've got the rest of our lives, God has told multiple generations, and even in Noah's day, my spirit will not always strive with man. There will come a time when you keep hardening your heart, hardening your heart, hardening your heart, saying no, tomorrow, no, later, 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 right now I want the... There will come a time and you can't predict it. You're not in control of it where God will say, my spirit will no longer trouble you. And so today you may say, what does conviction feel like? Conviction is the knowledge of knowing what needs to be done. And so today, if you know that you're not walking with Jesus Christ, you're not following Jesus Christ, that's conviction from His Spirit, because otherwise, you wouldn't know that. If you're a Christian today, and you know that you're not being obedient when it comes to grace in, grace out... If you know that there's people in your life that are lost and you're afraid of them or maybe there's prejudice in your life that you don't want to to deal with or maybe there's silence in your life when you know there shouldn't be, that's conviction right now of His Spirit. And you can't be guaranteed that you'll experience the same conviction tomorrow. He might be up to here. And He'd be fair to do that. Because Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Today. That's when we feel it. That's when we obey it. So we're going to sing, and I'm going to ask you, if the Spirit is revealing anything to you today, you need to obey while we have a chance. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.